0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Ian Campbell, an associate professor of history at UC Davis. And today we'll be talking about his book, Knowledge and the Ends of Empire, Kazakh Intermediaries and Russian Rule on the Steppe, 1731 to 1917, which was published in 2017 by Cornell University Press. So thank you so much, Ian, for joining me.
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Maggie. It's nice to be here.
0: So, this is a big question to start off with, um, but could you sort of set the geographic and historic stage for listeners? You know, so if you can try to define um, where or what the Kazakh steppe is, or at least how it was being um, thought about in the time period that you're focusing on, and then what was the political situation on the Kazakh steppe sort of leading up to the period on which your research focuses? So the date range, you know, that's given in the title of your book, 1731 to 1917. What's the kind of build-up or the prehistory to that that listeners might need to understand? Uh
1: sure. Yeah, I can talk I can talk about both of those things. And of course it's a very long time period. So a bit of talking about the time frame is talking about a process of change that happens in this region. Um so the kazakh steppe um there's a bit of an analogy um it's not precise um, but there's some analogy to present-day kazakhstan right and so these are basically the grasslands of central asia um, north of the kind of oases, um a little bit further south in um in Turkestan, so what's today um uzbekistan um that region um so this is largely arid grassland um, in the south that edges on the foothills um, of some low mountain ranges bounded in the south by the Sirdaria River in the west um, by the Caspian Sea. And the north, you know, there are these kind of grasslands that eventually border into the kind of taiga uh, regions of our, or what's called forest steppe of uh, western Siberia. Um, I mean, the, the way I talk about it with my students sometimes is imagine the kind of you know blank space that you think of when you think you know Russia is here China is here um, uh, the Middle East is here imagine a blank the imagine the blank space a lot of that is the Kasackkh step um, um, that's my, my that's greatly oversimplifying it of course um, and so in terms of setting the stage chronologically basically this is a book that in a very broad sweep is talking is going from the kind of, moment of the kind of first moment of incorporation of uh, some parts of the Kazakh step into the Russian empire and very much a frontier society with limited political control. Um, An initial encounter that comes out of Kazakh Hans um, seeking kind of agreements with Russians to help with their own sort of political or military um, issues. Um, And it's a pro it kind of goes through the process of the gradual incorporation of these lands into the Russian empire. Um, eventually the settlement of many of them by, uh, Slavic colonists, um, uh, Russian and Ukrainian colonists. Um, and ultimately, um, the kind of, the revolution of 1916, a revolution against colonial, a, a revolt against colonial rule leading into, uh, The revolution of
0: 1917. Great. Um, So, your book, if I can perhaps not very elegantly summarize it, is about the process of incorporation of the Kazakh steppe into the Russian Empire and how Tsarist officials acquired knowledge and information. So environmental, geographic, historical, cultural, what have you, about the step that was necessary for that process of incorporation, and that sometimes or oftentimes they acquired that information from Kazakh intermediaries. Um, Does that sound fair so far? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And so one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that you really get into discussing the biographies and life stories and ideologies and biases of the individuals on sort of both sides of this story of the Russian officials and their Kazakh intermediaries. Um, And very often in topics like these that are about nomad state relations or kind of historical interactions of nomads and empires, it's really difficult to pin down who the actual people were who were parts of these networks. So we get these kind of like homogenous faceless entities of an empire on one side versus a nomadic group on the other without actually understanding the people and the individual complexities that made up those groups. Um, But here you have some pretty in-depth kind of character studies of figures on both sides of the story. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about who the actors, who some of these actors were and their identities.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And I mean, I should also say as a caveat, you know, I'm able to restore, um, I'm able to put some more people into this story in part because, you know, some of these are, you know, they're, they're indigenous, but they also, they have relatively high social status. Um, They are, you know, kind of making the choice to engage with Russian institutions, with Imperial Russian institutions. And they are also, um, you know, they, they are also... Kind of considered to be important figures in Kazakh history. So they're kind of people who um, have been already moved forward in the historical record. And so there is a level, there's a whole level of this that would we'll be thinking more about like kind of scribes or lower level translators or kind of lower level servitors of the empire, that that I don't talk about much in the book and I do sort of treat them as faceless. You know, that's, that will be a fair fair critique of the book that we still, you know, need to kind of delve into the, those people a little bit more. Um, so, but one of the things I like about bringing in personalities, um, where it's possible to do that is really the, the story of the book in a lot of respects is contingency. I think, you know, this kind of ephemeral cooperation between Tsarist authorities and um, between kind of um, local, between Kazakhs who engage with imperial institutions, it's all very contingent. And so that depends so much on kind of individual personalities, um, how people fit with each other. And a you know, part of this is that, you know, this is an, this is an autocratic empire um, where kind of where officials at different levels of the hierarchy have a fair amount of power um, to decide how they're going to do things within their district, their province. Um, And so this means, this can be good and bad from the perspective of cooperation, right? Because if somebody is interested in kind of seeking out this kind of local knowledge, working with intermediaries, they're able to do that. Um, But like if that person gets moved to a different post or dies um, and is replaced by somebody who's less congenial to that sort of thing, then, you know, it's all just kind of hanging by a thread, right? So this is this is mostly a story of like possibilities for cooperation that get foreclosed, not always existing cooperation that gets foreclosed. Um, that's a long way of saying um, a really An example of that that I really enjoy is in the third chapter of the book, um, um, this figure named Ibarai um, Altansarin, who uh, is best known as um, the kind of founder of the system of, um, or playing a critical role in the development of a network of uh, Russo-Kazakh schools in um, the province where he's working, uh, where he lives, um, to a guy, obelist. um, and, you know, what's interesting about Alton Sarin's life to me, uh, well, a lot of things are interesting to me about Alton Sarin's life, um, but one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, he is cooperating with some of the most notorious Orientalists, um, some of the kind of greatest uh, chauvinists, imperial chauvinists, um, that, you could imagine he's, um, corresponding um with a guy named Nikolai Ominsky, who is this famous, uh, Orthodox missionary um based out of Kazan, who's interested in, uh, native language education um as a means of spreading, you know, you know of spreading Orthodoxy. Um, um, he's cooperating um with uh, this famous um Orientalist Grigoriev, um, who um, has a pretty dim view. Um, sometimes of non-russians um, who he's interacting with. but you know, th- these are the people who is who are who are available to work with, right? If you're interested in the educational system um, in this part of the world, um Ilminsky is going to come up at some point. Um, and this kind of idea of native language education, you know, it turns out that Altansarin, can you. Yominski, when people start thinking about um, doing kind of mixed Russian and Kazakh language school says, Hey, what about this guy, Alton Saren? Um, He's interested in this. He knows how to do it. Um, and um, Alton Sarin is able to say, Hey, you know, the idea of native education, native language education, you know, that does make sense. This is how we reach people, but I want to use it for a different thing. Um, I want to use it, um, you know, to create the kind of education that I think um kazakh's need Um, and um i have my own ideas about say you know there's a whole politics of script right what language what script um you know kind of kazakh education manuals ought to be let in he has different views of this than alton sarin so it's someone you know engaging with imperial institutions but seeing them as a resource um through which they can you know advance their own ideas on um, their own sort of agenda. Like, you know, the caveat here is that Alten Saren also does very much think that the step needs to be transformed um, in the wake of the Russian contest conquest. Um, it's just that his view of how that transformation looks is vastly different from what Ilminski or Gregoria for somebody else does, you know, Al- Alton Saren, you know, is, you know, producing, you know, a textbook that explains the kind of fundamentals of Islam um, for his pupils. Um, very hard to get much further from Ilminski than that. Um.
0: Right. Um, and so maybe focusing on, well, if I can sort of ask a question that's a little bit selfishly geared towards my own research interests, um, you know, the, I was struck by um the sort of differing attitudes towards pastoral nomadism um, that were expressed between the various fi- the various figures that you were looking at the Russians um, and then their Kazakh intermediaries who, as you said, um, most of these Kazakh intermediaries were of a kind of somewhat elite social status, um, where they themselves perhaps were not from a sort of nomadic background or had kind of, um, yeah, not particularly favorable attitudes towards pastoral nomadism, but can you talk a bit about that, about what people were, what these people that you're, um, looking at were thinking about pastoralism and, how or if um, they saw pastoralism as something to be either preserved or, well, eradicated.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's a whole spectrum of ideas about pastoral nomadism um, and it's the kind of it's the diversity of that spectrum of ideas that creates some space um, I think for Kazakhs to engage on their own terms without kind of submitting to the terms um, on which people are perceiving um, you know lifeways on you know these great Eurasian grasslands right there are it seems to me at least within these circles few to no voices in favor of leaving nomadism pastoral nomadism exactly in the form that it was um uh even some of these Cossack interlocutors um tend to develop a rather stereotyped view of pastoral nomadism and the problems with it you know that you know that it's quite unstable from year to year that's quite vulnerable to acts of god that it's hard to improve at um or that uh it's sometimes talked about as just kind of a disordered wandering that's more um imperial russian commentators to do that but even you know kazakhs who are arguing for the preservation of stock raising um they do um they do they do tend to accept some of those criticisms of it um but then there's a whole school of thought that says basically um and this is Kazakhs, but it's also some Russians um, who are saying, you know, look, this is a great place to raise animals in herds. Um, this is it is arid. It is a huge grassland. Um, and so what you don't want to do is try to turn people to agri- to doing more agriculture than you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of like semi-nomadism in this part of the world too, you know, people who will like sow a plot in one place and then, you know, but mostly nomadize. Um, but you know, what we really need to do is, you know, mainly raise animals and we could talk about intensifying it, um, you know, in trying to, uh, range over more definite pieces of land or to have kind of stricter controls over the herd or something like that and kind of more commercially orient um the herd. that you you could do that while taking advantages of the good stuff that's already here which is a really ideal environment for raising uh sheep and horses in particular um and people who really already know how to do this um, and, you know, and to, to kind of the an idea even that this might even uh, you know align with the kind of industry you might wish to develop here. You know, like, why not? You know, the railroad is coming. Why don't we prepare to, like, you know, export, you know, d- skins and hides and, and meat um, to the center of the empire instead of trying to grow grain here? Um, but then there is another whole school of thought that, basically sees any kind of note. And this is largely on the Russian side of things. Um, um, there's another school of thought that sees nomadism as just fundamentally a disorganized way of life. It's just sort of a lower level of development. And so the idea is that there needs to be some kind of transition Um to a more sedentary lifestyle. And, you know, within that, tra- within that transition to sedentarism, then, you know, whether that means keeping more animals or transitioning fully to agriculture, um, there's some debate about that. But, you know, the idea is that basically um, agriculture is a more stable way of making a lifestyle. And some of this, I think, has to do um, with just the way that states see nomads full stop right um nomads are hard to count they're hard to tax you can't stop them from like crossing the border lines that you've put down on a map so it would be really a lot more convenient for everybody if um we got these nomads to stop being nomads so we could you know get them to go to schools and uh you know And so that they would actually pay the taxes um, when we come to collect them. Um, But there are, you know, there's a whole host of kind of, you know, negative stereotypes that are associated with nomadic lifestyles. And the idea is that, you know, with settling on the land, um, that that would be kind of a first step towards... um, Towards Russianizing these nomads um, towards um, you know bringing them to a higher level of development, um, and sometimes this is also phrased in humanitarian terms right it 's better for them if they can get a crop in the ground every year instead of worrying about their herds being wiped out by such and such a thing but this is of course um, you know a pretense um, yeah so there's a range of there 's a range of these ideas, and the fact that you know within any of these camps there 's kind of a diversity of opinion of why people think. You know, nomadism, but better nomadism, or, uh, you know, agriculture. Um, and you know, there's a whole question of who should be the agents of this transition to agriculture. The fact that there are, you know, there are these multiple camps and then there are splits within these camps provides, you know, Cossacks who want to engage with their Imperial Russian and interlocutors, provides them with kind of a whole menu of options that they can choose from and also, you know, add options to the menu themselves.
0: Mm. And so you so you just um, sort of defined this project as being one of Russianizing the Kazakh step or Kazakhs. What did that actually mean or what did that look like in practice? like what what, what did the Russian Empire, what did the Tsarist officials consider it what transformations did they consider to be necessary on the Kazakh step in order for it to be Russian and for the people there to be considered fully Russian.
1: Okay. Um, absolutely. And um, I, I want to be clear about a terminological difference that is um, important when talking about this. I'm saying Russianizing very specifically because it is a different thing from Russifying. And this is a common error. Russifying is um, something that's happening um, in the Western part of the Russian Empire, so Ukraine, Poland, um, and this is much more, you know, we have to convert these people to orthodoxy, we have to stamp out this language, which is, you know, basically, you know, which we think is a historically erroneous version of Russian, right? You know, th- this is, you know, a full on transformation to making these people, you know, you know linguistically... Religiously, culturally, Russians, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the step. We are talking about Russianizing, um, which is kind of a longer—I hate to say—gentler, right? But it's kind of a longer, more gradual process that's almost a sort of almost conceived of as a kind of osmosis, right? Um, to make these people in some ways more like Russians. So that is to say, get them to uh, go to schools, get them to um, share kind of certain cultural norms and values, to have them be able to speak Russian, but not necessarily to stamp out another language, to not try to religiously convert them. Missionary efforts are generally... Minsky aside i'm very much frowned upon in this part of the world and there are some interesting conflicts between like missionaries who would really like to come to this part of the world and save souls and governors who are like absolutely not um i have to manage these people and if you're trying to convert them like that's going to interfere with my business um so yeah it's just kind of a much subtler way of kind of gradually adapting People to imperial Russian lifeways, material culture, um, uh, being able to be a part of imperial structures and institutions without kind of stamping out the other parts of it, um, and you know, one of the ideas that ultimately emerges very permi- perniciously for the people in my book, one of the ideas that emerges, and this is why i was really hesitant to describe this as gentle in any way, is that you know, one of the ways you could get people to Russianize, to act more Russian is settle some Russians on their land near them, um, or sometimes just in places where they actually were. And um, by the kind of osmosis of like watching doughty Slavic peasants get their crops in and whatnot, this will gradually, you know, exert a beneficent influence on people and get them to see that actually putting crops in the ground is better than, you know, herding sheep. Um, But yeah, it's this whole kind of like complex of cultural ideas um, rather than, and it doesn't insist on like the exclusive use of the Russian language or conversion to orthodoxy.
0: Um, right. Okay. Um, And so the Kazakh intermediaries who you're looking at, you know, to the extent that they participated in this kind of Russianizing project and helped facilitate it, were they kind of on board with that aim of Russianizing the Kazakh step like did they agree with those terms and see it in those terms of we're becoming gradually you no know, however slowly um, part of the Russian Empire and that's something that we, accept and want or what were their kind of to the extent that you can put your finger on this i understand that might be difficult to kind of identify but what you know what kind of personal or political ideal ideological um benefits did they see in this project
1: yeah i mean so i don't i don't think they fully accepted all the kind of pretense that you know we we ought to russianize um i think I think frequently they see themselves as not having much choice but to engage. Right. Um, so you know, I, in the book and actually kind of toward the end of writing the dissertation, I was reading, you know, started reading a bit in native American studies and you know, got this really read this you know really provocative concept of the X mark, right. As a way of thinking about the kind of agency that people do and don't have when, um, when they're engaging with imperial institutions, and I think, I, I think of a lot of my people as essentially making an X mark, right? Saying like, "Look, this is not ideal, but engaging with these institutions seems you know, is a choice I'm making, and it seems to be the best way to shape the situation." So, you know, somebody like, you know, so you get lines of argument that are like, yeah, we'd like to make, you know, to transform ourselves in certain ways, but we see the empire as a resource to help us do that, right? Absolutely give us resources, give us institutions. We don't buy the premise that we need Russians to be settled here um, to like kind of um, do this sort of cultural osmosis for us, right? Um, You know, we would like... We would like schools. Um, we would like resources. Um, you know, we would like access sometimes to markets. We do not particularly want settlers here. So it is, um, it, it is you know, oftentimes making the best of a bad situation, and it's trying to find levels on which one can engage and try to shape the situation for the better. I mean, and it also sometimes. Has this function on a personal level too? You know, some of these people are either themselves elite or descended from elites. Um, engagement with the Russian Empire is also a way for them to preserve social status, um, and you know that goes both ways in the sense that you know the Russian Empire is always very interested. In finding elites with whom it can cooperate, because this is still throughout the 19th century, such a heavily hierarchical and aristocratic empire, there's a sense in which, at least, you know, at least in the first half, through the first half of the 1800s, um, a lot of imperial Russians are able to look at, say, somebody who is from like a noble Kazakh lineage and say, in a sense, this person has something in common with me, right? You know, we are, we are elites. We are aristocrats of our own sort. We, we, we manage the simple people. Um, So it it works on both of those levels, right? There, there's a, there's a kind of a personal, sorry. There's a personal advantage sometimes for this, but there is also this kind of making a choice, making an affirmative choice within constraints, um, to engage rather than just bowing out.
0: Um. and so what, um, I'm not sure how I want to phrase this. Um, to what extent, um, do you think there was a sense of kind of a homogenous or maybe homogenous, it's going too far, but was there a sense of Kazakh sort of identity, During this period, you know, maybe sort of calling it like a nationalist identity is probably anachronistic. Um, But to what extent did Kazakhs kind of see themselves as a unified people, you know, or was it, or were people organizing themselves and seeing themselves along class lines, along tribal lines, along affiliation with their hordes. I'm not that familiar with the concept and terminology in this particular case. Um, Can we, can we say that the Kazakhs were actually Kazakhs? You know, was there a Kazakh people sort of unified that, this Russian project was directed against, or was it much more kind of heterogeneous?
1: I mean, it, it's it's a move from greater heterogeneity to greater homogeneity um, over the course of the book. You know, the Russians certainly encounter um, different parts of the of um, the Kazakh people, piecemeal, right? Their initial encounters are in the north with the uh, the small and the middle hordes. Only much later, when they move south into the steppe, do they encounter um the great horde. Um uh and you know, there's you know, there, there's a great book um about this by a guy named Steve Sable, who's talking about essentially the genesis of Kazakh national consciousness um over the course of imperial rule. And you know, some of the people in my book. Um, So someone like Alton Sarin, you know, is essentially an important step in on the road towards the development of a Kazakh national consciousness, right? So the, uh, you know, that kind of classic story of, you know, there are colonial schools, um, you know, this involves standardizing, you know, a a language so that it can be taught in colonial schools and, you know, all, you know, newspapers develop. Um, you know, communications networks develop, and kind of gradually, this produces among among relative elites. You know, at least a sense of national consciousness and of being distinct from other uh, Muslim groups um, in this part of the empire. Um, it doesn't really. It seems to me. It's still largely an elite phenomenon for most of the period of my book. You know, there are a lot of activists, um, people who I talk about in the last chapter of the book, um, who are trying, you know, very hard to uh, to create this idea of um, a Kazakh national consciousness. Um,
0: um. And so if I can maybe also ask that question, sort of going in the opposite direction. Um, So what was the, how did this, Project or how did the kind of Russian encounter with Kazakhs and with the Kazakh steppe maybe transform the Russian Empire, sort of the Russian center, you know? Um, can this, you know, instead of just looking at how um, the Kazakh steppe was Russianized, did things in, you know, were there changes in, Moscow and Russian identity um, and how Russia saw itself as an empire based on the sort of expansion into the Kazakh step.
1: Um, to me, those sorts of changes in Russian identity, which do occur during the 19th century. Um, it doesn't seem to me that they have a lot to do with this imperial encounter um so over the course of the 19th century the russian empire begins to conceive of itself more on it's a more on a national model than a dynastic model um which is to say you know earlier on um there's this sort of you know this sort of conception that you know is we all pay taxes to the Tsar, right um so you know therefore it doesn't really matter um you know it being a part of the Russian empire means loyalty to the dynasty over the course of the 19th century, that gradually shifts. Um, to me, this has to do more with kind of, you know, broader shifts in European history, right? And broader shifts in Europe, this kind of idea of, you know, nations as mobilizing, um, units. Um, this is the era of nationalism. Um, it also becomes, um, not only does it become more centered on Russian national identity and orthodoxy, but it also becomes more exclusionary in uh, religious terms, uh, more more generally Islamophobic. It seems to me, but that it seems to me has more to do with encounters um, in the Caucasus um, and you know kind of various military engagements with the Ottoman Empire as well, and that tends to. Those shifts affect the way that they perceive things that happen on the Kazakh step, um, and they ultimately, you know, kind of foreclose ideas, um, different certain modes of cooperation, and certainly when new thi- when kind of when new things come to light on the Kazakh step, they can kind of be taken as like taken through that prism, right, and tend to confirm the shifts that are already happening. Uh, the major shift, if there if there is one in terms of how this affects the Imperial Center, is this, you know, th- these are some of the core lands that are being thought of in terms of, you know, where we can resettle people from the core of the Empire to kind of, optimally use what they call the productive resources of the empire, right? You know, the Kazakh steppes, Siberia, you know, these are places that some people think are, you know, massively underdeveloped and places where we can see kind of a new, you know, a better future for the empire if we, you know, develop them correctly. There's a certain analogy, it seems to me, with how Some American thinkers are thinking about the Great Plains um, and the West, right? You know, this is the site of our potential. Um. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So if I can maybe switch gears and ask uh, about sources um, and the sources that you used for this project, um, because you draw on. Um, quite a range of uh, archival sources, um, publications, newspapers, journals, scientific publications um, in both Russian and Kazakh. Um, So if you could just talk a little bit about, yeah, about the sources that you used um, and maybe just about your kind of research process in general for this book.
1: Oh Lord, I wouldn't recommend my (laughs) research process to anybody. (laughs) It was frequently, you know, I'm going to, you know, try to pick up threads and see where they lead, right? So you know, the very origins of this project were in a Kazakh class in graduate school, a Kazakh language class, when I learned for the first time that Kazakhs were part of these local divisions of the Imperial Russian, Ge- Russian Geographical Society. And I thought, you know, what's going on with that, right? Um, let's think about kind of exploration and knowledge production in Kazakhs' part in it. Um, and as I kind of kept re. As I kept reading these, you know, publications, I wanted to see how Russians were thinking of the thinking of the step. I wanted to see, you know, where I could and, and kind of take that as hints for, you know, of course, where might I find some Kazakhs you know, when I go into the archive, or you know, where might I find, you know, traces of what they think about it. Um, and then it kind of became this recursive process too, right? Because once I found some Kazakhs and started reading more, you know, things that you know you know, these kind of various Kazakh elites had written or, you know, the kind of the journals um, in the Kazakh language in the you know early 20th century. I then started to kind of trace that back and say like, okay, what do these folks seem really preoccupied with? And, you know, so when I go back to the archive, where do I look next? Um, I tried as best, I tried to follow, you know, Follow the networks in publications as best I can. Right, so you know where did this idea come from? Who's citing whom? Um, what? Why are these people preoccupied with certain ideas? Um, and how do how do certain ideas kind of keep living on while others um, eventually die out? Um, I relied to a certain extent on bibliographical resources created at the time, right? So I wanted to say, okay, if I can, if I want to get an idea of like what an administrator might have thought um, or the kind of information they had had access to, let's, let's go through these bibliographies. Like the idea being that sort of, if it's not included here, or, you know, if I don't find a work in several different places, its relevance is probably dubious to someone, right? Um, if, If this is kind of dead, um, if, if it exists, but nobody would actually be able to read it. Um, so I did try the best I could to, uh, you know, reconstruct the kind of horizons that these people were living in using, you know, you know, following, you know, between different texts, using, um, contemporary bibliographies and taking those as hints to get into the archive, um, and make the best use of the kind of limited time that there was there
0: yeah Um, and this is maybe not something you're directly concerned with but just something i'm curious about is what it is it possible to obtain sources or information produced by non-elite kazakhs in this period you know literary production um i don't know necessarily what that would look like but you know can we reclaim the sort of voices and histories and experiences of the people who are not necessarily literate or not necessarily, you know, producing in these sorts of journals and newspapers that you're talking about?
1: I mean, there, there are a few potential avenues there. You know, one is that, you know, certainly scribes exist, right? So, you know, you get a lot and so you get a lot, you could find a lot of, you know, um, non-elite voices that are mediated either through a scribe or through a translator or both um and there there there's so much of this um still to be worked through um uh you know good luck getting to a russian archive right now but um at the central archive in kazakhstan um there there are I would say there are literally hundreds of book projects just waiting to be picked up off the ground by somebody who can, you know, work through this stuff. Um, you know, another way of thinking about literary sources. Um, I, I talk about these folks a little bit in the book. There is this movement. Um, uh, there, there's this sort of, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Um, uh, it's not exactly, There's this group of uh, bards on the Kazakh steppe that are referred to as the Zarzaman um, poets, um, the kind of troubled times, bad times poets. And this um, is representative of a whole strain of thought um, on the steppe that is not really interested in engaging with the Russian empire. Um, So it's not like, okay, this has happened, you know, we're going to make the best of it here, but it's much more, um, you know, this is something to be mourned. This is, you know, something that we've lost and we're not getting back. And so I think paying attention to that is very important as well, um, because it seems to me, you know, that that represents, that, that represents the thinking of a lot of people who we know, who get rather less represented in the historical record um, and about whom we know rather less. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe just a final question. Um, Do you see any kind of contemporary resonances or significance of this period and situation that you're researching into the present? You know, obviously the history of the Russian empire and sort of, Imaginations of the Russian Empire um, have been in the news a lot recently with the war in Ukraine. Um, But do you think that there in your context, you know, do you think that there are ways in which these transformations of the steppe um, and sort of processes of imperial information gathering and knowledge production sort of linger into the present?
1: I mean, I think a couple of different things here. Um, I mean, one, you know, there's some kind of immediate relevance in thinking not just about Ukraine, but other parts of, you know, Russia's so-called near abroad, right? In terms of, you know, who counts as... Russian, what sort of land counts is Russian? What criteria are we using to think about that? And, you know, the tra- the the changes that take place, you know, toward the end of the Imperial era often, you know, they continue during the Soviet era. Like so, you know, northern Kazakhstan has an enormous Russian population. It was much larger, you know, right after um it was much larger toward the end of the Soviet period, but there's still a large Soviet population there. This is a legacy of Russian and Soviet settlement in the region. And that certainly has, you know, created some nervousness, right. In terms of like, you know, in terms of potential Russian claims on territory like that. And, you know, the kind of, you know, related idea that, you know, in terms of the invasion of Ukraine, right. Well, you know, these are Russian speakers. So, you know, therefore, you know, this, you know, That means that this is territory that ought to come back to Russia. Right. No, it's it's like, you know, ethnicity and language didn't always track with one another in the Russian Empire nor in the Soviet period. And it's a very bad way to make a claim on territory now, now that it's stopping um, some people from making them. Um, So, you know, certainly we're dealing, we're thinking about the resonances of that, you know, in kind of contemporary geopolitics, but also, you know, there is the kind of broader issue about, you know, what happens when we try to transform a place, um, right? Um, Who gets to make those decisions, whose voices are being heard and not heard. And also, you know, this kind of idea of being alive to the potentially unintended consequences, right? Because you know, one of the kind of key things that happens in my book is toward the end, you know, the Russians, the Imperial Russians, they develop a way of knowing this place that uh doesn't really seem to involve local voices at all. And they think they know it in this kind of more objectively correct way. They can finally grasp it very firmly but it's like trying to hold onto a bar of soap. The moment they grab it very firmly is when it slips out. Um, and so like, this is something that has a lot of resonance I think for, you know, thinking about development or transformation, you know, really in kind of any part of the world, right? I know your interests are in uh, North Africa, right? Um, or thinking about the American West. It's it's a story that we've seen a lot and that we continue to see.
0: Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book and learning about sort of these processes and historical interactions of empires and nomadic peoples in a region that is new to me. I hope it's, uh, I know it's of interest um, to the listeners of this channel as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about it.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Maggie.